0: Good evening, good to be back. We're turning in our Bibles tonight to John's Gospel, Chapter 13. We were in John, Chapter 10, I know, this morning, and uh, don't worry, I can't count, but um, this is the sequence which I've been given these chapters in because the chapters we deal with in the morning lend themselves more to evangelistic themes in the Gospel, and so it's a little bit out of sequence, but you can understand why that is. There's more teaching here tonight, particularly for believers. So we'll be back in John 11 next Sunday morning, preaching the gospel. But tonight, we're turning to John 13. Now, j- just by way of introduction before we read, John 13 through to John 17 it comprises, it's called the upper room ministry, but it's effectively a farewell ministry from our Lord Jesus to his beloved disciples. And, of course, it ends with that great intercessory prayer in chapter 17 when he prays for his own. But we're looking tonight at chapter 13 uh, at an object lesson that they would never, ever forget. The Lord Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And so that's how he opens this instruction in the upper room. And we read, Uh, Chapter 13, we're reading down to verse 17 from verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, and the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, "'Lord, are you washing my feet?' Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. When we come to chapter 13 of John's gospel, it is effectively countdown to Calvary. We are in the last week of the life of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. Some churches call it Holy Week. We're probably on day that is Thursday of that week. It's a bit of debate, but we'll say it's Thursday. And the disciples have met together in the upper room to observe the Passover. And we read at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus knew that his hour was come. Now, more than any other of the four Gospels, John emphasizes that Jesus is on a heavenly timetable, his Father's will. We read in chapter 2 and verse 4, at the incident of the marriage feast of Cana, Jesus said to his mother, "'My hour has not yet come.'" Chapter 7 and another incident, and chapter 8 as well, he says again, "'My hour has not yet come.'" And then when we come to chapter 12, if you look at it in verse 23, we read, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. We read him saying in verse 1 of chapter 13, our text, that the hour had come. And then when we come to John 17, that great intercessory prayer in verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. What was this divinely appointed hour? Well, very simply, it was the hour in which the Lord Jesus would be glorified, he would be crucified, suffer death, be buried, three days later resurrect, and then ascend to heaven. And from a human point, it seemed anything but glory. It was suffering, but from the divine vantage point, God saw it as glorious. The Lord's earthly ministry would be over. In close to 24 hours, he'd be hanging on a cross. And though the cross is not mentioned in this portion of Scripture, it casts a shadow over every word, not least this object lesson of washing the disciples' feet. And I want you to notice this and see the parallels with the washing of the disciples' feet and what the Lord Jesus Christ would do for us as his children at Calvary. Look, it says, verse 2, Jesus rose from supper. He rose from a place of comfort and rest, just as he rose from his throne in heaven, a place of comfort and rest to come to this earth to be our Savior. Look on. It says he laid aside his garments. He took off his covering just as he laid aside his glory in coming to this earth and took off the heavenly covering. It says he took a towel and girded himself. Verse 4. He was ready to work just as he had laid aside his glory and then took upon himself himself the form of a servant and came ready to work for God and on the behalf of mankind. Then it says, he poured water, verse 5, into a basin. He was ready to clean. Just as he poured out his blood to cleanse us from guilt and the penalty of sin. And then in verse 12, it says, he sat down again. After washing their feet, just as he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the right hand of the Father, after cleansing us from sin, having risen again from the grave. Is it any wonder John began this chapter, ending verse 1 with these words, he loved them to the end. Literally, it means he loved them to the uttermost. To an infinite degree, he loved them. And He demonstrated this love by washing their feet, but that was pointing, surely, was it not, to Calvary. And he gave himself completely in this object lesson. I mean, he could have took a a wet flannel and just wiped the dust off their feet, but he didn't. He gave himself completely to this act to indicate how, going to Calvary, he was giving himself wholly to the Father's will for God's glory and for us. It's wonderful, isn't it? Now, it's easy here to celebrate the cross redemptively, all the great truths of our salvation, and fail to appreciate practically what Jesus was teaching in the washing of the disciples' feet. Now, what I mean by that is that Jesus links the cross with service. And I have to say that I find most of the time in the New Testament— When there's teaching on the cross, it always has a practical application. I'll give you two examples. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it talks about the uh, humiliation of the Lord Jesus and his condescension and how we ought to condescend to one another, how we ought to forbear and think of others as greater than ourselves and serve them and be long-suffering with them. So it's connected. And there was feuding in the church at Philippi and That was the point that Paul was making. But he used the cross. And then 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, we see exactly the same. He who was rich for our sake became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And Paul says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus. And if you look at the context, he's exhorting these Christians to give money. To give money to those saints who were in need. Now, we would think that perhaps abhorrent to use the cross as a motivation to give money But Paul used the the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus in a very practical way, how it ought to affect our lives as Christians. Now, as we read here, we read that Jesus knew many things here. He he knew Judas was going to betray him, verse 2. He knew that the Father, verse 3, had given all things into his hand. There are great, profound truths in this portion of Scripture that we don't have time to go into. But what I want us to concentrate on is this great object lesson of washing the disciples' feet. And I want us to see what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this evening through this. First of all, this object lesson teaches us a lesson in security. It's the first thing I want to bring to your attention. And if you look at verse 1 to 3, you will see that the emphasis is on what Jesus knew. He knew that his hour was come. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. And then in verse 4 and 5, the emphasis is on what Jesus did. So because of what Jesus knew, he did what he did in washing their feet and ultimately going to the cross. Now, think of this. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. He knew who he was, he knew where he came from, he knew where he was going, and so he enters into this act, and ultimately on the way to Calvary, not as a mere victim of fate, but as a victor and a master of his own de- destiny. It, it smacks of him being in sovereign control of this hour. Now, this knowledge that Jesus had, Relates directly, I believe, to this object lesson. And here's the reason. We often think like this, do we not, when we look at this incident. Wow, look, look at who he was. Son of God in flesh, and we marvel at what he did. Who he was and what he did washing the dirty feet of the disciples. From such a height he stooped so low for this deed. Now that's true, of course. But there's a great danger of missing something else very important when we focus on that. The title I was given here tonight is aiming high by stooping low. And there's no doubt about that. That is what this passage is teaching us. But have you ever considered that here we have one who was stooping so low because of how high he was? Let me repeat that. He was able to stoop so low because of how high he was. Let me explain. He knew that the Father had given all things to him. That's what John says. He knew what his destiny was. And if you have all things in your hand, you'll have no problem picking up a towel. Perhaps I'm not explaining myself. Let me apply it like this. Have you ever considered that pride, the thing we all have a problem with, and some of us, including myself, have enough to about a battleship, pride actually comes from insecurity? Have you ever considered that? You might say, well, that that sounds contradictory, because I would have thought pride came from from a sense or even an overt sense of security, self-security. Well, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I believe the desire to exalt oneself comes essentially from a dissatisfaction with oneself. So you have to overcompensate, if you like. You see, the tragedy of pride is that security can never be found outside of God— Lucifer found that out, didn't he? He would exalt himself, and he was cast down. He wasn't satisfied to get his satisfaction, his identity, his meaning, his security from God, so he sought it in self. But you cannot find security in self. And then you become insecure. But when you find security in Christ, and you realize who you are in Christ, and what you have in Christ, You have nothing to prove anymore because you're secure, not in yourself or your achievements, but in who Christ is and what He's done. And you're satisfied in Him. So you don't need to find satisfaction in yourself or your own achievements. You know that you have been born of God. You know that you are in Christ. You know that you have all things you know that you are going to God. So whatever you do, whether it's something grand and God uses you in a mighty way, or whether it's something menial or humble, it doesn't affect your worth because you do not derive your worth from what you do, but from who you are in Christ. Are you getting this? So I know that it is marvelous and awe-inspiring to see the stoop from the heights which he stooped to do what he did in this task of washing the disciples' feet. But I want you to consider tonight that actually it was the heights of security that he was in that enabled him with confidence and security in God to take such a low step. You see, the irony is, in God's economy, it is through humility that we show our security— To resist humility and be proud and assert oneself shows that we are insecure in our relation to God. Now, I haven't got time to go into this, but if you want an example of this, you see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, Corinth was a church that was broken up into factions because of schisms that took place over saints who followed particular personalities that enamored them, preachers that they liked, teachers, Christian leaders. And we read in 1 Corinthians 3, listen carefully as I read it to you, 21 through to 23, 1 Corinthians three, twenty-one. Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. You hear that? You don't need to boast in anyone who's particularly gifted, or profound, because all things are yours. Listen, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So he's saying, don't find your identity in the personality that you're following. Why, why do you get a sense of satisfaction because uh, Paul, he's got the brains, and Apollos, he's the gifted orator, and um, Cephas, well, he's got the charisma. People like him. He's a man's man. Don't derive your identity from that. Derive your identity from, from God, what you have in Christ, and Christ is God's, and therefore all things are yours. Do you see it? When we give in to pride and a competitive spirit, we show that we are insecure in our relationship with God. And if you have to prove something, you're insecure. But if you have nothing to prove, you can wash someone's feet. It's an object lesson in security. But see something else. It's an object lesson, as we've obviously stated already, in humility. The Jewish laws and traditions say that a teacher, a rabbi, had no right to expect his disciples to wash his feet. They might be his understudies, but it was wrong for him to expect such menial service of them and it was customary that the lowest servant of the house would wash the guests as they entered into a house. Not all the time, but particularly for formal meals, just like this Passover meal would have been. Now, look at verse 2. It appears that midway through the meal, Jesus rose from the supper. To wash their feet. Now the authorised version and the New King James, which I am reading tonight, says, And supper being ended, but other texts actually say and during supper, during the meal, and if you go down to verse four, that seems to be borne out by that verse, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Irrespective, what is very clear is that they ate this meal with dirty feet. You say, Well, so what? Well, they ate this meal, most likely if it was the Passover, around a U-shaped table that was very low in height. They didn't put their knees under the table. It wasn't high enough. They didn't sit on chairs. They sat on the floor. In fact, they reclined to eat the meal. You may have seen it in pictures. But by reclining, it meant that your feet at such a low height of a table would be very close to the person beside you eating. And uh, in the dust of the desert of the Middle East, you can imagine how dirty feet would become. So it appears that they had started eating and they were halfway through the meal. Why didn't any of the other disciples wash the feet of the rest? Why didn't a disciple do this first? Why was it left to Jesus? Well, we've read from verse 1 that Jesus knew many things, didn't he? And one thing he knew was the pride that was deep down in the heart of these disciples. And don't misunderstand me. I think that any of them would have washed Jesus' feet. But they couldn't have washed his without washing the others. So no one got their feet washed. Someone put it like this. It would have been an intolerable admission of inferiority among these fellow competitors for the top positions in the disciples' hierarchy. What they mean by that is, if you look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, don't look at it now, but it wasn't minutes after this event that the disciples were arguing among themselves who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? (laughs) How they would wash Jesus' feet if they didn't have to wash the other boys. It was an object lesson in humility. Now, the more I think about this act the more profound it becomes and I cannot share with you tonight in the time we have what is in this portion of Scripture but I believe the problem is all we ever seem to do about this portion of Scripture is think about it would you look with me please to verse 13 you call me teacher and Lord and you say well for so I am We think about it. We preach about it. We spiritualize it. But Jesus says, blessed are you if you do these things. Now, I'm going to give some of you a shock. I want to wash someone's feet here. Tonight. (gasps) How do you feel about that? Are any of you at this moment feeling a little bit of panic? My wife might. Who's he going to pick? I hope it's not me. Why wouldn't you want it to be you? Why? Would it be that you might be embarrassed? Someone washing your feet. Why would you be embarrassed by letting someone serve you? I'll give you the answer. The answer is pride. That's why. To be served by another often demonstrates in our warped mentality that we need others. And we don't want to demonstrate that we need others, we want to demonstrate that we don't need others. It makes us feel vulnerable when others serve us at times. And plus, we have been conditioned through education and through media and through society to be self sufficient, it feeds our ego. Our self, self-satisfaction. Now, I'm serious. I'm not just using an illustration. I'm going to pick one of you tonight. I'm just looking around. You're saying, not me, aren't you? Don't pick me. You've got to crawl under the seat. I don't want to do it. The preacher washing my feet. What if Jesus was the one looking around to pick someone? To wash your feet. How would you feel about that? Never mind the preacher. Jesus, the Son of God. How would you feel then? Well, how did Peter feel? Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, you washing my feet? And Peter said in verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. And verse 8 is a strong double negative. Kenneth Weiss translates it like this. You shall by no means wash my feet. No, never. Well, I'm going to wash somebody's feet. Who will I pick? Well, I'll put you all out of your misery. I've already asked Trevor Alexander to come up to the front here. He's going to come. He's going to bring a basin. Now, did the Lord not say, do this? And I want you to consider if it was you sitting on the seat and I was doing this to you, how you would feel. Now, I want you to think about that, really, as Trevor comes. Now, let me just say before I do this that there's the potential of this being humorous because when we're embarrassed and when we feel awkward and other people feel awkward for you, we tend to laugh things off. But I want you to resist the humor tonight and try to appreciate what this actually means, okay? Now, I know all of you couldn't see that, but you got the gist. Now, Trevor, I only want to ask you one question. How does it feel to have your feet washed? Um, I suppose um, to see you get down on your knees and uh, you know, put feet in the water, it's unusual and also quite humbling. And perhaps a bit embarrassing as well, especially with all these people here. That's all I want to ask you, Trevor. Thank you for obliging. Now, Trevor said it was humbling. Um, Many years ago, I I visited India, and turn this off and go back to the other one, and some of the dear Indian people, very poor, poor people, um, got the whole team who were away in India, lined them up, and did what I've just done to Trevor, and it was the most humbling experience of my life. These poor Indian people washing my feet. And I felt, that's exactly the words that I used to express that experience, how humbling it was. Now you ask me, I, I was doing it here tonight, that's the first I've ever done that, how I feel. Well, the answer is exactly the same. I feel humble. It was hard to do that. It takes boldness, not timidity to be humble in an active way. Don't think it's timidity or fear. It's much easier standing behind the pulpit here and uh, above contradiction almost. It's very different than formality. I wonder how the Lord felt. Did he feel humbled? Well, Of course he didn't. Because he had no pride from which to be humbled from. Had he? He was humble. He was there. He was it. It's very powerful, isn't it? And what an illustration of Philippians 2, verse 1, following, but we read from verse 4. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, listen, put all this together for a moment. The Father had put all things into the son's hands. And yet he picked up a basin and a tile. And that was imprinted indelibly on the consciousness of the disciples. And eventually, they got the message. Because in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, we read that Peter said to elders, by the way, and all of the assembly, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And the the scholars believe that this idea of clothing yourself with humility is exactly the same terminology— that is thought of when Jesus girded himself with the towel to wash the disciples' feet. That's what you leaders ought to be doing. You're meant to be servants washing feet. And Peter went on to say, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As someone put it, he resists the proud, but can't resist the humble. Oh, there's so many lessons from this object lesson particularly in relation to humility. Now, here's another one that I want to share with you tonight. Listen carefully. You must learn to be served by Jesus before you can learn to serve Him properly. Have you got that? You must learn to be served by Jesus before you can learn to serve Him properly. And one of the signs that you are learning this is if you let Jesus serve you through His body, that is the church, other believers. Do you take service well when others serve you? Or do you react proudly? Some of you might be familiar with William MacDonald, many of his writings, brilliant, um, and preacher of the Word of God, and outstanding expositor of the Bible. And when he first went into the Lord's work, he, he went out looking to God alone for his needs. And he believed, as many do, and you know this, that God would move the saints to touch their hearts, to give and to provide his need. But this was a real problem for William MacDonald because he, he, he served in the, the, the Navy, I think it was, and then he went into business. And he was a very successful businessman. And in business, he, he developed a work ethic. And he believed that, well, whatever you needed, you got yourself with your own graft and the sweat of your brow. And so this idea that you went out and didn't earn a living as such but waited on God to touch the hearts of saints to give you finance, he felt a wee bit guilty about it. Didn't sit right. In fact, I heard it recently described by an unbeliever, have to add, as chomping through life, living off charity with religion as an excuse. (laughs) Very nice. Pride really has a hang-up receiving unconditionally, doesn't it? Some of us even have problems receiving a compliment. We don't realize that that's not humility, provided we don't let it puff our heads up, but we imagine that there's nothing at times to compliment. Well, anyway, go back to MacDonald for a moment. On one occasion, a lady after a meeting gave MacDonald a gift. And within the gift, the envelope, there was a poem, and this is how the poem went. Listen carefully. It says, I hold him great who for love's sake can give with generous, earnest will. But he who takes for love's sweet sake, I think I hold him more generous still. He who takes for love's sweet sake, I think I hold more generous still. You see, if you're going to minister effectively for Jesus, you've got to learn what it is to receive service and ministry from Jesus and from his body, the church. Temple, the preacher said, Man's humility does not begin with the giving of service, it begins with the readiness to receive it. For there can be much pride and condescension in our giving of service, but there's very little pride at times when we receive it. It's hard for pride to receive ministry of this kind. It's an object lesson in security. You need to be secure to minister, knowing what you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. It's a, an object lesson in humility, and part of that is you have to learn to take from God's hand before you can ever give, because we have nothing to give of ourselves anyway until we have taken from him. And Peter bore that out, didn't he? Because it's also an object lesson in fellowship. Verse 8, Jesus said to Peter after he protested, No, never wash my feet. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Jesus was using a term in Greek, luo, which means to bathe, to bath, to immerse. And you must allow Jesus to wash you completely. And it's in the perfect tense, which means this is settled once and for all, and you never need to be washed again. This is salvation. This is regeneration where you come into union with, with God through Jesus Christ. And Judas hadn't got this. That's why Jesus said at the end of verse 10, you are clean, Peter, but not all of you are clean. You're not all clean, he says, repeats again in verse 11. Are you washed tonight? Is there someone here that is not cleansed of, of your, your sin?" But once that happens, and it only has to happen once, because we walk in a defiled and wicked world, we, we get dirty feet. And you must have your feet washed before the Lord, spiritually speaking. Verse 10, look at it all. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So let me try and sum it up. Jesus uses this word luo for regeneration where we get washed completely clean of our sins. But here in verse 10, he uses the word nipto, which means wash a part of the body for this washing of feet. And he's saying this, you're clean, cleansed, and forgiven when you come to Christ in repentant faith, trusting in him alone. But because you get dirty and defiled as you walk through this life, you need your feet washed. And so if the bathing is union, this washing of the feet is communion. The bath speaks of being cleansed of the penalty of sin, and the feet being washed by the basin speaks of being cleansed of the pollution of sin that we pick up every day. It's all of what John talks about in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make God a liar. But if any man sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must walk in the light as he is in the light. We must walk before him to have our feet cleansed. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on cleansing us of all sin. Now, that's evangelical doctrine about justification and about communion and fellowship. But But consider this, linking all of this together tonight, consider true humility grows out of a constant relationship with the Father through the Son. And I believe there's an allusion here to the fact that unless our fellowship with God is right, our fellowship with others won't be And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, yes, you have to be washed all over. And he said, wash me from head to toe. And, And Jesus told him, you're already clean. But you have to have your feet washed. And he's teaching them, unless you receive ministry from me, unless you allow me to serve you, and sometimes I will serve you through the ministry of the church, the body, unless you do that, you'll not be in a fit position to minister to others. You see, when we're not right with God, we're not right with our brothers and sisters. Genesis chapter 3 teaches that, where God's relationship with man was broken through man's sin. And then in chapter 4, man's relationship with his brother was broken because of sin. You've got to get your fellowship with God right. And unless you're fellowshipping and relating right with Him, you'll not relate right with others. And the church today desperately needs this lesson on humility because it is filled with competitive spirit, criticism, jealousy, backbiting, bitterness. And the only sign that that is, is that we're not right with God. We're not receiving from God. And I want you to consider this, and I believe this is a word from God to someone, or more. I consider Trevor, friend, Jesus was at the feet of a traitor. Doesn't say he washed everyone's feet except Judas named Iscariot. Is there someone who has betrayed you? And the Holy Spirit of God is calling you to wash their feet. Wow. Peter wasn't ready to minister to others because he hadn't learned to receive ministry from the Lord yet. Are you not able to minister to others effectively because you haven't been cleansed of bitterness? You haven't been freed of a competitive spirit? What an object lesson! on security and humility and fellowship. But see, finally, just to sum up, it's an object lesson in service as a whole. The Romans in their culture had no use for humility. The Greeks despised manual labor. But see what Jesus does. He exalts these virtues to the highest place. And he tells them, yes, you aim high by stooping low that you climb the ladder in the kingdom of God by going down. He's teaching them that the highest rank in the power structure of the kingdom of God is the servant. It's an object lesson in service. Warren Wearsby says, the world asks how many people work for you, but the Lord asks for how many people do you work? But more than all that, look at verse 17. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you mark your Bible, you should maybe mark the word do, especially between 13 and 17, these active words. And Jesus is saying, you will be truly blessed. You will be happy if you do these things. And listen to what he's he's telling us. The true happiness, you know that thing that everybody out there is searching for, irrespective of their background, their class, their, their, their creed. Everybody's wanting to be happy, even you. You want to be happy, don't you? Well, blessedness comes, true happiness comes through humble service. Blessed are you if you do these things. Now listen to what he's saying. You cannot be happy. if you will not be humble. Like I said here once before, you cannot be happy unless you are holy. But equally, you cannot be happy if you will not be holy, but you cannot be holy if you will not be humble. And the order here is important in the mind of God as he imparts it to us. First there is humbleness, then there is holiness, and then there is happiness. What are you trying to find your happiness in? You must first be humble before God and before men. Then you will be holy and then you will be happy. Now, I was thinking about this and I thought to myself, isn't it ironic that when we think of Christian service, you know, Christian work, full-time work, we in the church tend to think of elevation, don't we? Don't we? An exaltation. I mean, be honest, don't we? Someone being made a pastor, or being made an elder, or going to the mission field, they're they're promoted in a spiritual sense to another level. That is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He is teaching us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he who was rich for your sakes became poor, and he came to serve. And it was because he knew who he was. It was because of what he knew. It was because he was secure in God and in the will of God for this hour that he could do it. A Malay proverb puts it like this, The fuller the ear of rice grain, the lower it bends. The fuller the ear, the lower it bends. Wouldst thou be great Then lowly serve. Wouldst thou go up, go down. But go as low as e'er you will. The highest has gone lower still. He was made sin for us. But here, I come back to this. We could celebrate this redemptively, and that's wonderful. We've touched on that. But it's practical. You must do it you want to be blessed, you must do it. You can be moved by this meeting tonight. And I dare say you might have been moved seeing that tonight. I was moved doing it. Trevor was moved receiving it. It's a very, very sacred moment in a sense. And we can be inspired and stirred emotionally and even spiritually by by a portion of Scripture like this. But you will not be truly blessed until you do it. Now, you say, David, what are you saying? We have to wash everybody's feet now. Is that what you're proposing? And some might say, oh, do you not know that this is a rite and an ordinance in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church and in certain sects of Christendom do this and we wouldn't have anything to do with them? look, I'm not interested in any of that at all. I'm interested in John 13. But it might be a good exercise once in a while to do this, just to remind ourselves what actually happened. But I don't believe the Lord is enshrining that this ought to be a thing always being done in the church. He is speaking to us of a principle of serving one another. This was a cultural form that happened in the most menial servant did this in the home. But whatever it is today to do tasks that we at times may feel are beneath us, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we must serve one another in that manner. Now, some people spiritualize how we do this, wash one another's feet, and they say, well, it's washing through the Word. And uh, you know, as you share the word with Christians who have been defiled and backslidden and out of fellowship with God, well, then you renew them and so on and so forth. Well, that may be an application, but let's not go against what Jesus says here. Do, he says. Do. And if you look at John's other writings, 1 John, Second John, 3rd John, what are they all about? There's a lot of truth in them, but they're also about love. And if you see your brother in need and shut up your heart of compassion against him. How dwells the love of God in you? Now, I'm almost finished. But we need to ask a question. When did the disciples learn to actually do this? We, we, we heard the Lord exhort them, do this to one another. Have you seen me do it? Do it to one another. And we saw 1 Peter 5, verse 5, that Peter the penny had dropped d- years later. But you know the point at which the disciples learned what this was all about? Pentecost. That's right. In fact, the penny dropped regarding everything at Pentecost. And here's the lesson from that. To wash one another's feet is not natural. It is supernatural. The old nature goes against it. Because it is in fact the nature of God in Christ that is imparted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you look at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. But they all emanate from that first characteristic love. And it's agape love. That's the love of God. It's supernatural. That's why you have to go against the grain. Jesus didn't. He didn't have to humble himself. He was humble. But if we are going to do it, we're going to have to humble ourselves. We're going to have to count the nature dead. And ask for the fullness and power of the Spirit to walk as He walked these apostles and disciples were going to be the foundation of the church that would be built on. And it would not survive if they did not learn to serve one another and started lording it over one another. I want to ask you, having heard this message tonight, will you now seek opportunity by the power of the Spirit to wash someone else's feet? Friday afternoon when I was sort of finishing off this message I noticed that the sun momentarily came through the clouds. It was time for a cup of tea and I went out to the back garden to catch whatever rays I could in a half an hour. And I was sitting down meditating on what I'd been studying and I just said to the Lord, Lord I don't go about saying, Lord, whose feet can I wash? And I said, Lord, would you Teach me how and show me how to wash people's feet. Now, I'm not exaggerating. A few minutes after that, the phone rang. And a person who was very, very distressed that I've been dealing with of late came on the phone at the point of breaking. And I spent an hour and a half on the phone with them. And I was absolutely exhausted after it. But I realized how I can wash feet. He humbled himself... To the manger and even to Calvary's tree. But I am so proud and unwilling his humble disciple to be. Someone has summarized this portion like this God's formula for spiritual health and joy. One, submit to the Father. Two, keep your life clean. Three, serve others. Go and do likewise and you will be blessed. We're going to close in prayer just now. And then the praise team is going to come and lead us in a final song, The Servant King, very appropriate. After that, the meeting will be over and I'll go to the door. But let's just close in prayer. And in this moment, please, I'm conscious God has been speaking. Maybe there's someone here with a root of bitterness in their heart. I mean, please think of this. I mean, I just despair at times preaching that people just it's as if they're watching television and it's it's not talking to them and they don't apply it to their situation listen there's someone in your life and they've been a traitor to you or they have deeply hurt you and i'm not saying that you deny what they've done or legitimize it because it might be very wicked but you need to learn to wash their feet. Even if that's just praying for them every day. Could every believer here tonight say to the Lord, just now as we pray, Lord, give me an opportunity. But By the way, it's a bit inconvenient to wash people's feet at times. And you can get your own hands dirty. But that's the cost of service. Will you say, Lord, give me an opportunity to wash someone's feet? Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his humility, and to think that he is the revelation of your heart, O God. And we, we just cannot conceive of this the great God of heaven, and he reveals his heart. And it's a humble one. The great lion of Judah, but his heart is of a lamb. Oh, Lord Jesus, teach us your way. Help us to follow you and to wash one another's feet. Their irony is, Lord, it's our pride that would stop us doing it, and yet what is the result of it? Humility. Maybe folk here tonight just need to exercise their will against their intuition and their emotion and embarrassment and just go and do something that they might be blessed. So teach us now how to serve. That in our lives we might enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we are serving. Amen.